welcome back to Public Books 101, a podcast that turns a scholarly eye to a world worth studying. I'm Annie Galvin, an editor and producer at Public Books, which is a magazine of arts, ideas, and scholarship that is free and online. You can read the magazine at publicbooks.org. And I'm Natalie Kirby, Digital Content Associate at Data and Society. Data and Society is a research institute that studies the social implications of data-centric technologies and automation. You can learn about our work at datasociety.net. This is the third season of our podcast, so if you're listening for the first time, I invite you to subscribe to Public Books 101 in your podcast feed and listen back to season one, which was about the internet, and season two, which was about the novel in the 21st century. This season, we're excited to partner with Data and Society to explore the past, present, and future of human life being quantified as data. Natalie will be your host for this season, so I'll pass the mic over to her. Thanks so much for listening. In this season, Becoming Data, my guests and I are considering a few main guiding questions. How long has human life been quantified as data, and in what contexts? What are some major implications of humans being quantified or measured as data? How are people pushing back against the datification of human life, work, health, and citizenship, among other things. If you have thoughts about this episode, you can tweet at us at Data Society or at Public Books. You can follow both organizations on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about the work that we do. Today, my guests are Deb Raji and Arthur Guagua. We'll be discussing data, AI, and automation, and the different ways they operate across geopolitical contexts, most notably in the US and Africa. We speak not only about the harms that can result from these systems, but also the ways that we might address and prevent those harms. Deb emphasizes how important it is to listen directly to impacted communities. All right, let's start today's conversation about data, automation, and AI. All right, thank you both so much for being here today. Um, So to start, if you could just say your name and tell our listeners a little bit about the work that you do, that would be great. So, Arthur, why don't we start with you? My name is Arthur Guagua, currently in Zimbabwe, but I work for Utrecht University Ethics Institute in the Department of Philosophy. I'm a researcher uh, looking at uh, the impact of socially disruptive technologies on democratic norms and democratic processes and society. Uh, prior to that, I was an AI researcher with University, University College London, working on cu- framing uh, a roadmap for artificial intelligence development in specific sectors in Africa, like health, agriculture, and so forth and so forth. Great. Thank you so much. Deb, how about you? Hi, uh, my name is Deb Braji. I'm currently a fellow at Mozilla and I work very closely with the Algorithmic Justice League, um, thinking about how we can evaluate and understand uh, deployed systems. So systems, AI systems and algorithms that have sort of been um, not just constructed in a lab, but thrown into the real world and affecting real people. Great. So this podcast series is about data. Um, So to start us off, I want to ask both of you, what is data? And I think it's really interesting to kind of see how different people answer this question. So Deb, why don't you go first? 
Yeah, I see data as sort of representations of real people and real human subjects in many cases. Um, a lot of the systems we think about at the Algorithmic Justice League are systems that try to take representations of people through data and make decisions about those people's lives. So the connection between the information about the person and the person behind that information for me is very clear. So I, I, I see data as people and um, the way we interact and manipulate data really involving the sort of manipulations of their lives that end up happening due to these systems. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that data as people. So Arthur, how about for you and your work? What is data? or How do you define data? I think the generic definition is uh, is about facts, it's about you know statistics, it's about attributes. But in the context of my work, it, you know, data is about I think facts, statistics, and attributes relating to not only individuals but you know groups of people, and which is collected over time, and then we end up calling it big data. So which means that data about one person may not really mean much. But I think if you combine that data with data of people within that particular community, uh, say a town, a city, or a neighborhood, then it tells a story. It can be amenable to analysis. Yeah, I like that you emphasize that it's not always about the one data point, but the patterns across like multiple data points. So this episode is specifically focused on data, AI, and automation. And I'd like to just differentiate those terms for our audience um, and then give some examples of them in the real world. So Deb, can you tell us what an algorithm is, the difference between AI and automation, and then give us a few examples of these systems in the US? An algorithm means very different things to different communities. Um, I'm coming from the machine learning community, which is a community that makes use of data and defines um, the rules of a program using data in order to build a model that then gets sort of shipped out to make decisions on data that's never seen before. Yeah, that's really what an algorithm means to me is sort of those instructions on how to make use of past data in order to set new rules for how you think about new data. For me, the difference between sort of automation and AI. AI is for me a very nebulous term. I I think AI is connected to, you know, the sci-fi vision of a machine with the mental sort of, or the cognitive capacity of, you know, humans, where it's sort of predicated on this assumption of, you know, humans are really able to do a lot of really interesting things. We have a lot of impressive cognitive abilities, you know, how cool would it be if a machine was able to do some of these things? So, you know, have a conversation, be able to see in the way that we see, manipulate language and visual cues in the way that we do. The difference for me between automation, though, is that automation is uh, not really as much a vision. For me, it's connected to a lot more pragmatic examples. It's not as connected to sort of the sci-fi speculation of like, what would it be? What would it mean to have a machine mind? (laughs) There's practical applications that we want to achieve. There's some, there's certain things that we want to be able to do faster or we want to be able to do at scale. Can machines sort of help us make these processes automatic so that we're not manually making some of these decisions uh, and interacting with these systems as, as frequently as we do? Um, if you think of the, the press stories around Sophia the Robot, which was sort of this humanoid robotics 
uh, cyborg thing. It was very like human-like looking, lots of wires. I, I think that would be something that people would sort of affiliate or associate with the vision of AI. Whereas automation more often looks like something like a Roomba, where like a Roomba is much more widely deployed. You know, it affects a lot of people's lives theoretically, but it's a much simpler machine. It achieves the sort of practical application, you know, in this case, vacuuming that people want to get done that people don't want to do themselves. I will say that like in the U.S., there's so many ways in which automation uh, shows up and interferes with people's lives. In the criminal justice system, uh, they use algorithms and different types of models in order to try to predict the ability of someone to rehabilitate after a certain amount of time in jail. Uh, the recidivism scores, so the, the the probability that they'll come back, uh, you know, to jail after they've been released, and then they'll use so those predictions as leverage points to make decisions about their real lives, such as how long they're in jail, you know, how much they'll set for bail, and um, a lot of really important things. We also see a lot of algorithms being used in healthcare to sort of prioritize different applicants for organ donations, to sort of automatically predict, you know, who's most likely to be at risk. Uh, and thus, who should get the hospital bed. I also mentioned education because that's something that in COVID times also became a very huge application of algorithms and AI in, in the US, where I would say like education and hiring, where people have been trying to use these systems in order to, you know, automatically assign grades and, you know, automatically do some things that that are sort of taking a toll on the teachers managing larger and larger classes. And then with hiring, sort of automating some parts of the process of, you know, what the hiring manager should be really doing, looking at individual applications. Is there a way to like whittle this down so that it's easier for me to manage in this you know situation where the pile is sort of overwhelming to look through? Yeah, thank you for all those examples. I feel like you made a, a really good point there where like the way that we talk about AI is like this very like mystical future vision. And it almost, I think for for people who aren't like really steeped in these subjects, it can like mask the fact that there are all these automated systems like making yeah. decisions about our lives right now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So Arthur, for you, I'm curious, like what are some examples of AI and automated systems showing up in the African context? Because I can imagine they might be a little bit different than what we're seeing here. Yeah, I think auto automation, I think, preceded the era of artificial intelligence mm -hmm. where Maybe factories, uh, they started using automatic equipment, maybe to improve maybe efficiency on the conveyor belt. But, but I think what artificial intelligence has done is to disrupt automation, maybe to enhance it or to augment it. Whereas I think in the past, it was more to do with the hardware and the equipment. But now we are beginning to, to see cognitive behavior in those equipment where the equipment behave sort of like, you know, duplicates or replicate, you know, human behavior or act independently, independent of, you know, human agency. So I think when you're talking of Africa, most of the services that we are seeing are leveraging platforms by global technology companies like Amazon AI services, Microsoft Cognitive Services and Google AI services. Then we've got independent African you know, startups and, and scale-ups, startups and scale-ups. But I think in terms of startups, they are being seen in, in fintech, in education, and in health. IBM, for example, is working with local you know, startups. It has got what is called IBM Hello Tractor, which is an open source mobile platform that enables farmers to access tractor services on demand. 
then in Africa, I think what we are also seeing is uh, machine learning communities like their machine learning and data science in Africa forum. Uh, these communities are also experimenting with you know different applications, especially natural language processing, uh, to ensure that African languages are fully reflected in not only in cyberspace but in AI applications. So most of these applications are mostly focusing on what we call AI for good, sort of like you know those projects that are pro promoting uh, or adding value to you know, public utilities like, you know, climate, good climate, agriculture, production, health, and, and other nonprofit making sectors. Hmm. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I think what kind of came out in your response is that there's a geopolitics of AI, right, in Africa. Like, it's not... It's not just African startups working on AI interventions, but it's actually all these other countries kind of bringing in their technologies as well. So Arthur, I'd love for you to talk a little bit specifically about the relationship between China and Africa when it comes to uh, exporting AI. And then I'm curious what your thoughts are on the consequences of having foreign control of these data-centric systems. Yeah, China has been increasing its investment in AI research and development into Africa as part of its in foreign policy, but also as part of its domestic artificial intelligence you know, practices. Uh, for example, let me just you know, give, give you a few examples like you know, Alibaba e-commerce, Tencent's most popular product like you know, WeChat and then ByteDance, which is you know, behind TikTok. So some of these applications, what I call benign applications, are already seen in Africa. I think we usually associate Chinese export of AI technology in terms of you know, surveillance technology. Countries like Kenya, Rwanda, Uganda are also importing Chinese artificial intelligence, but the same technologies are also being used to surveil, to exercising you know, a social control on the streets and are being used by the police in order for them to combat you know domestic crime but also external threats like you know terrorism but i think as we have seen the same technologies are also being used to control protests or any form of you know, you know dissent so yeah i think in terms of you know consequences uh, the export of intrusive and covert ai technologies to african countries especially those with poor human rights records, is likely to reinforce existing systemic repression and uh, introduce new forms of, of repression at the same time. One of the observations that we are making is that the harvesting of data by China, for example, through facial recognition technologies, is going beyond conventional tra trading parameters. So it's some sort of you know uh, colonization that is happening. But... As I mentioned at the beginning, this is not only a problem from China because European countries are similarly deploying same technologies in Africa. But of course, when it comes to Europe, there are some safeguards. Whereas in, in the relationship between China and Africa is free for all, it lacks transparency and it lacks any accountability mechanisms. Thank you. That was a really great explanation, I think, of the different players. And I'm, I'm happy that you highlighted the difference between European exports as well. 
So Deb, I'd like for you to just give us a few examples or maybe one example of how companies in the US or Canada might outsource tasks related to AI and automation to other countries. Like data labeling is one that comes to mind. Yeah, I I want to also note that like the US and um, Canada do also import, you know, some AI capabilities as well, especially with respect to China, a lot of surveillance companies used by government agencies for multiple capacities, specifically um, a lot of affect recognition tools. So trying to detect emotions or filter through applications for some indication of personality or emotion. A lot of those are developed um, in China. And then also a lot of surveillance tools. You know, one of the companies we audited was sort of the Face++ product from MegV, which is a very, you know, big company in China. So I, I, yeah, I just wanted to point out that that dynamic also does exist in the U.S. and the U.S. does make use of those surveillance tools uh, on the ground to to also uh, surveil their citizens as well. There's a lot of um, civil rights violations also happening here as well. There's a lot of exploitation happening with respect to how companies in the U.S. Um, or Canada interact with developing nations as you know sources of data. So often. We've heard cases of, you know, people going into those nations to sort of collect citizen data because it's, quote unquote, easier. There's less regulatory control around specific types of data like biometric data. But also, like you mentioned, a lot of situations where a firm in the U.S. might collect a bunch of unlabeled data. So information that doesn't necessarily have like categories assigned to it or isn't necessarily mapped onto a task that might be useful commercially a company might collect that data and want to, you know, filter that information into different categories by putting a label on it. Um, and that's a hugely tedious task to look through images, for example, and try to say like this image goes in the bucket of images about dogs versus this set of images is about cats. They outsource that work. Usually India has, you know, a huge market for this. A lot of African nations those that are sort of disadvantaged economically, you know, having an opportunity to, you know, gain a couple cents per hour by labeling um, these data sets. There's also an, a, a moment um, in certain contexts where it actually becomes quite inhumane where, and this is something that came out with Facebook, where Facebook was trying to build a model to sort of filter out incredibly violent content and filter out, you know, nudity and and not safe for work images. Uh, but the, you know, the labelers, the people that were actually filtering through these images, um, those people were being exposed to sort of these hor- horrific graphic images, you know, day in and day out uh, in order to assign these images to a label. And it was incredibly emotionally taxing and um, emotionally traumatic in many cases. It can sort of be uh, tragic to think about how that's a situation that disproportionately affects, you know, those that are likely the least privileged or have the least agency to ex- escape that situation. Yeah, I feel like there's like two key points that really came out of that for me is like, one, there's always a human behind it somewhere, right? And yeah. we've been trained to not think about the human. And then on top of that, I think you made a good point in saying that, right, like we have exports that come here as well. And my question was framed to ask you about the way that we outsource certain tasks, but it's a reminder that, yeah, some of those tasks happen here as well. And that exploitation also happens here. Yeah, uh, people sort of forget that there are content moderators that are Americans, like there are certain parts of America, especially like, there's a lot of great work done by Lily Rani on the labor dynamics of content moderation, where, you know, 
Some of them are trying to organize to get better pay, uh, to get better working conditions. They have, um, you know, there's the, there's these um, horrific dynamics that exist on certain platforms where, um, you know, someone might spend, you know, an entire day labeling data. And then if the person that had sort of requested that labeling work decides to reject the labels that they had um, assigned to the images, you know, that person doesn't get paid for that entire day of work. Um, and you can just uh, imagine how you know frustrating and exhausting that kind of labor condition is. So um, you know, there's been a lot of really good work on just uh, empowering these communities to start organizing and to start you know advocating for themselves and for better conditions for themselves. Mary Gray has a great book on this called Ghost Work, where she really dives into that. Um, but it was interesting for me because when I kind of first met, you know, mechanical Turk workers doing this advocacy work, I was really surprised a lot of them were American um, and, uh, you know, were speaking to their experience as Americans, technically participating in the tech industry, technically participating in, you know, the machine learning economy, but as this, you know, very, as this underclass, as this uh, sort of, you know, dismissed level of participants, you know, to what extent can we recognize the contribution of the people that are doing this really, really difficult job? How does that ex uh, affect how we sort of interact with these people, respect these people and the labor conditions that they're entitled to have? Right. And expanding this notion of like, who is a tech worker, right? Because exactly. it encompasses all of these people. Definitely. Yeah. So we've, we have talked a little bit about some harms that come from the workers, right, that work um, mm -hmm. on AI, whether it's labeling data or the content moderators. But let's talk about some of the harms that arise from the people who are affected by the systems, the ones who mm -hmm. uh, the systems are making these decisions about. Mm -hmm. So and I'm curious to see how these harms kind of differ across contexts and, and also are similar. So yeah. Deb, can you give us a few examples of algorithmic harm and then explain how human bias often becomes baked into these systems? Yeah, you know, algorithmic harm is such a, um, first of all, it's such a, it's such an important term to begin using. Um, uh, when I first started uh, doing this work, people were very keen on the specific harm of bias and uh, having conversations about you know, uh, situations where you have a model that's deployed in the real world and it doesn't work for this particular segment of the population, a horrific outcome for that segment of the population, for sure, um, especially when it's, you know, an algorithm that is meant to make important decisions about healthcare or criminal justice or, or you know, whatever it may be. In terms of accountability, it very much correlates with like conversations around discrimination, which we have sort of a language for, you know, thanks to the civil rights movement in our law. Only recently have we began to expand our vocabulary of harms to understand that, um, you know, there are many ways that humans can be uh, negatively impacted by an algorithm. And the definition that I use for algorithmic harm is, you know, a, a situation where uh, an individual or a community is negatively impacted, you know, by a system of any kind. And an algorithm is sort of integrated in that system in a significant way. And an algorithm is sort of part of the the, the contributing factors that lead to the harm that they experience. So this could be a situation where the harm uh, or the, the the sort of danger of, uh, you know, automating a system or of integrating an algorithm is not necessarily that the algorithm introduces new risks, but that it upholds maybe a system that is like inherently detrimental to a particular community. So that also counts as, you know, a harmful situation for those that now have even less, you know, visibility and recourse in, you know, to be able to push back against this, this algorithm that's made decisions about them. There's, there's many harms I could speak about. I think I'll, I'll you know, there was a case that we 
um, were very involved in at the Algorithmic Justice League with um, the Brooklyn Tenants Association, where um, the you know these were a bunch of residents in a rent controlled uh, rent stabilized apartment, and their landlord was keen on installing facial recognition. And when we first sort of when they first sort of came to us, we were like, <laughs> oh, okay, yeah, great, facial recognition. You know, the harms associated with that are, you know, there's privacy harms. You're probably worried about how your data is going to be, you know, manipulated and made use of or, you know, bias. You're probably worried. A lot of the residents were um, a lot of the tenants were people of color. The landlord was white. So we were like, OK, yeah, maybe you're worried it's not going to work for you. And, and and that could give you, you know, that could re- lead to like, you know, physical risks if someone calls the police or um, exclusion if someone like, you know, locks you out of your room. And, you know, they were like. Yeah, we're worried about that, but that's not what we're really worried about. We're worried because, you know, we know our landlord for many years has been trying to kick us out and raise the rent and no one asks for this in our community. And we had no say in this as a community. And uh, we know that he's using this, you know, technology as another tool to sort of manipulate the situation and potentially really oppress us as a community. And we want to be able to push back against it. And I was just really blown away by that entire experience because for me, I was like, oh, you know, when you talk to these communities, the harms that they identify and what what they're worried about is not always what the research community is talking about. Um, another example is really with um, uh, security. So a lot of conversations around, um, you know, security concerns with machine learning systems are around like, you know, something that we call adversarial attacks, which is if I change a couple pixels in an image, you know, the model will predict a completely different label and that can become really dangerous. You know, if I change, um, if I put a sticker on a stop sign, you know, a self-driving car won't be able to identify it anymore as a stop sign. And that seems really dangerous and that's really scary. And that, that's a lot of what the conversation has been around, um, you know, security concerns in, in the the sort of machine learning AI world for a while. But then, um, you know, some people that <laughs> were actually sort of in communities uh, with self-driving cars and with some of these technologies already being implemented were like, no, um, you know, we're actually worried about uh, other things. Like we're worried about, um, you know, the lack of control that we have on, you know, being able to stop our cars. We're worried about, uh, you know, the fact that um, there's no way to turn things off or no way to indicate that we don't want this in our community you know, it's sort of these uh, governance issues that are so much, so much broader than um, just the technical, mm-hmm. you know, aspect of, you know, does this thing get manipulated in this situation versus not this situation? So I think, you know, the communities that are most impacted by the situation are uh, so articulate about what their concerns are and what they're worried about. Um, and uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that in order to get a good sense of harms, we need to actually be interacting with these communities and talking to them. It seems that a lot of community concerns are around this lack of agency or lack of ability to understand when an algorithm has been involved in a situation. There's not a lot of disclosure about that at all. Mm-hmm. But there's another case um, that I, I think about often, which is, you know, the A-levels um, situation where uh, in the UK, because of coronavirus, a lot of students didn't sit for their final exam. Uh, instead, uh, you know, their teachers uh, gave them a grade based off of the assignments that they had done throughout the, the year. And that grade was adjusted based off of an algorithm that was, you know, calibrate that was calibrating their grades based off of information like, you know, maybe the the, the typical grade point average for the the school or the the region, um, the history of you know the grades received by a particular community, and you can probably guess how this resulted in a lot of frustrations and outrage because there was sort of you know a community that you know might have a particular average 
every student from that community gets penalized um, using this because of this algorithm. And the conversation around these these types of algorithms in the academic community for a long time had been conversations around explainability. People want to understand, you know, why they got a particular grade and that's why they're upset. Um, but when you actually talk to the students, a lot of the protests were around a lack of appeals, a lack of access to appeals, a lack of information around the fact that this was happening and a lack of participation in being able to determine uh, whether or not this should happen. Definitely. A yeah, good, I'll end there. <laughs> a good reminder to, yeah, not only think about the technical, but the social and, you know, everyone's favorite term, the socio-technical. And I think also you make just like a really good point in all of your examples that it's so important to center the impacted communities, right? Because they're, yeah. in the end, whatever solution we come up with has to serve them. Yeah, exactly. Um, so Arthur, I'd be curious to hear from you about what kind of harms you're seeing in the African context as a result of AI and automated systems. Another harm that is happening in Africa, you know, relates to the new business models like Uber and Airbnb business models. For example, uh, like, you know, Uber, Uber taxi services, uh, replacing, you know, traditional hail and ride, you know, taxis in countries like Kenya and South Africa, impacting on the future of work. So it is leading to loss of jobs in communities and uh, where I think some of the industries might actually be wiped out in future and and because the services are are being outsourced to European countries or or, or to the US. Then another form of harm that we're experiencing in Africa is the risk of accentuating negative impacts of globalization. Because artificial intelligence means that I think the value chain our decisions along the, say, agriculture value chain or manufacturing are now being globalized or are now being made far away from where the consequences of those decisions are are felt. What that basically means is that I think some of the decisions may not actually protect the interests of of Africans. Then finally, relating to data again, uh, the ongoing debate about genetic sequencing data and the future of agriculture. As you know, agriculture is the backbone of uh, African economies. So companies like Bayer Monsanto and John Deere have monopoly over seed and pesticide industries. And they are also having a monopoly over genetic sequencing data, which is important, which is the future of agriculture. So the consequences of that, because this is what is called high-value data. So once high-value data is owned by the global north. This is going to disadvantage Africans in sectors like agriculture, health, and and also I think probably sectors like education and finance, because decisions relating to health, decisions relating to agriculture are being made in other countries. I think an interesting parallel between both of your answers, right, is Deb was talking about how even in the research community, some of the harms that they assume aren't necessarily the harms or the solutions that the community itself is thinking about. And here you're talking about that on like a major scale, right? Where decisions are being made in the global North about people in the global South, like the harms aren't necessarily visible to people in the global North, right? Because of that like literal geographic divide. So I want to talk a little bit about harm reduction um, since you both kind of gave us a good picture there of, of some of the harms that algorithmic systems produce. 
And so, Arthur, can you tell us about kind of one major policy conversation going around right now in Africa um, around AI systems? So one of the policy responses is being built around the post-colonial you know, solidarity, whereby African governments and, and maybe pan-Africanists think that artificial intelligence is a brainchild of the global north. When African, pan-Africanists and African governments are looking at uh, the issue of artificial intelligence, they are looking at you know, issues around solidarity, justice, fairness, equity, and, and equality. And then the other issue that is actually falling for debate, that, that is actually being debated at the moment, is around data ownership. You say, who owns the data? So Africa doesn't really have access to most of its data or the capabilities to turn that data into computer-readable format, let alone uh, for use in artificial intelligence. Then another policy response in Africa at the moment is to see how Africans can be included in the fourth industrial revolution because Africa has been left behind in their previous industrial revolutions. So African governments uh, and, and African academics are exp and, and policymakers are looking at how Africa can use its data in order for it, for, for it to advance economic development and be at par with countries like you know, China. Do you think that by African countries having ownership over their data will kind of reduce the harms that Africans are experiencing right now? Just you know, having data is not going to be enough. Africa needs to do much more than that, improving governance structures, but also improving accountability and, and transparency in, in society to make sure that once we have the data, it is not only going to benefit the elites, but it is going to benefit the underrepresented communities and the weakest members of, of, of society. Yeah, definitely. So Deb, I want you to talk a little bit about your project. You're helping people kind of recognize the algorithmic harm that they've experienced, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Um, so at the Algorithmic Justice League, we sort of receive these inbound requests or just cries for help of, of people that feel like they've been impacted by a situation and they're unsure, but they think that maybe an algorithm has been involved in some way or they, they've they been tipped off to the fact that there's an algorithm involved in some way. And we wanted to think about, well, you know, what are the current processes available for these people to actually report these harms uh, or even identify these harms and acknowledge what's going on? Um, so that's the work that we're doing. And we're hoping that, uh, you know, the way that it's sort of playing out, we're hoping that we can actually, it can lead to the design of a system that can actually, you know, serve as this, you know, portal or this resource for people that are being hurt and and don't understand how to talk about it, don't understand how to report it, um, and and, you know, how to get the harm that they feel to sort of result in some kind of justice for themselves. You know, it's been really interesting because, Education has played a very big role where, um, you know, the general public has sort of a limited understanding, uh, almost intentionally, of, you know, the way these algorithms intersect with their lives and how to talk about it. I say almost in intentionally because, you know, in certain cases, uh, such as what we saw with the Post Act and uh, NYPD, um, sort of really resisting any policy requirement to be open and transparent about 
what surveillance tools they were using. <laughs> um, it kind of reveals that certain institutions that make use of cer certain of these technologies uh, don't want it to be public knowledge what they're using and how it's interfering with people's lives. Um, but I think the most important thing is that we're really hoping that those that are affected become part of the conversation in defining which harms we talk about uh, as a research community. It's been way too long for that to not be the case. Uh, you know, I sometimes go into certain academic spaces and I see so much speculation happening and I'm like, we don't need to speculate in many of these situations. Like those that are affected are right there and they, and they can talk about, you know, what they're going through um, and they can really guide our work in a way that makes it meaningful for them in addition to meaningful for us. Yeah. I think that's a really beautiful, almost conclusion to this episode, but Arthur, I do want to ask you one quick question. And I know that you kind of also, you have this uh, philosophy background, right? And so I'm curious for you, when we think about the future and when we think about automation and AI, and AI we often think about progress and, and moving forward. So from your perspective, do you consider automation progress? Yeah, I think it depends, really. Yeah, I think if you are to ask someone from Tesla, you know, for example, or maybe a capitalist who is running a huge industrial corporation, they would consider automation progress. Uh, because we are beginning to see AI systems that exhibit genuine agency. They, they can act independent of you know, human intervention. But the drive to automate everything may, even if it brings about efficiency, it may also do so at the cost of what it means to be human, like you know, threatening the values, realities, and aspirations that, that communities care about. So what artificial intelligence is, is doing is to sort of like, you know, fast track Africa into world of progress to say, well, you can order your food from your house. Who said, who said, who ever said that Africans want, you know, that sort of progress? Because it's not in line with our culture. We usually have, you know, these social gatherings, you know, during the harvest time. But if all that is going to be disrupted because agriculture has become more efficient, that doesn't really count as progress in Africa. So before automation or artificial intelligence is counted as progress, we need to look at the human rights, environmental, sustainability, cultural impact and make an assessment uh, before deciding which parts of our life should be automated. Human happiness and flourishing. What does it mean to be happy in Africa? What does it mean to flourish? What do we mean by a dignified life? What are our moral obligations in respect to other human persons? For example, in Africa, we value Ubuntu. That is, I think, I am because you are. So we have a communal approach to life. So if we are going to have rational machines, you know, that think like human beings, but trying to replicate what we do, but dividing us asunder, that cannot be regarded as progress. But I would argue that I think for any systems uh, that are going to be deployed in Africa, if we are going to consider them as moral progress, we need approach that include philosophers, African philosophers, African elders, and those underrepresented populations like women and children in order for them to contribute to the future deployment of artificial intelligence systems, but also the policies that undergird those systems. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that was just like a beautiful way to end. And that's our show. A huge thank you to Deb Raji and Arthur Guagua for sharing their thoughts about data, automation, and AI. You can find links to their work in the show notes to this episode. Please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show there or in your favorite podcast app. You can follow us on Twitter at Data Society or at Public Books. If you have thoughts about this podcast, feel free to share them on Twitter and tag us. And if you like the show, please tell a friend or even a few friends. Next time on Becoming Data, I talk to Laura Furlano, a writer and design researcher who studies design, technology, and radical futures, and Ranjit Singh, a postdoctoral scholar at Data and Society who works on data infrastructures, global development, and public policy. Together, we investigate infrastructures of data, how these systems have infiltrated the most intimate corners of our lives. So I hope you'll join us for our next episode about data and infrastructure. This podcast is a production of Public Books in partnership with the Columbia University Library's Digital Scholarship Division. Thank you to Michelle Wilson at the library for partnering with us on this project. This episode was produced and edited by Annie Galvin with editorial input from Kelly Dean McKinney and Mona Sloan. Our theme music was composed by Jack Hamilton and our logo was designed by Yuchi Liu. Special thanks to Data and Society Director of Research Sarita Amrute and Director of Creative Strategy Sam Hines and to the editorial staff of Public Books for their support for this project. Thank you for listening and I hope to see you next time.